Welcome to The Meaning of Life, where philosophy gets personal. This podcast is a series of conversations between Dr. Susie Ferrarello and philosophers from around the world exploring the ever-persistent question of what is the meaning of life, amongst other topics in philosophy. Our host, Dr. Susie Ferrarello, receives her PhD in philosophy from the Sorbonne University in Paris. She is an expert in phenomenology, ethics, moral psychology, and ancient and contemporary philosophy. Dr. Ferrarello is currently a professor at California State University, East Bay, and also a philosophical counselor. Follow our social media accounts for episode updates, highlights, and other behind-the-scenes material. Hello, everyone. It's my great pleasure today to interview for our podcast, The Meaning of Life, where philosophy gets personal, Dr. Lauren Cannon. Lauren Cannon holds a PhD in philosophy with an emphasis on applied ethics, philosophy of law, and LGBTQ philosophy. He's a faculty member at Cal Poly Humboldt since 2006, uh, sorry, 2006, where he teaches uh, a variety of classes, especially applied ethics, environmental ethics, uh, philosophy of law, and trans lives uh, and theory. Dr. Cannon's recent book land project uh, entitled The Politization of Trans Identity, an analysis of backlash, scapegoating, and got dog whistling from Obergefell to Bostock has just been published by Lexington Press of Roman and Littlefield Publishers. The publication of this work coincides with yet another way of explicitly anti-transgender legislation across the county and is a timely philosophical intervention and critique of these political efforts. So I strongly suggest you to go and uh, read this book uh, and uh, thank you uh, Lauren for uh, joining us today. Well thank you for this opportunity I'm really looking forward to chatting. Yeah I today we are going to talk a little about uh, happiness and uh, how it connects to the meaning of life. So if uh, if you like I would start uh, with this question for you. Uh, can happiness be a choice? What do you think? I've been thinking about this a lot, and, uh, and it's such a question. And, and it's a question, you know, that I think so many thinkers, whether they call themselves philosophers or not, have thought about that. Um, you know, on, on the, my, my first thought was that if somebody says, yes, it's a choice, you know, then I wonder, like, well, what? What kind of happiness are we talking about that? Is it kind of a superficial happiness? Maybe not so one that's so robust. Um, of course, it goes back to the characterization of happiness itself. But I guess for me, I, I think of a lot of how um, we're also interdependent. We're interdependent with each other, with our communities, with our families, with our chosen families, with the environments and our non-human relatives. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's, there's some idea to think like, if it's just a choice and I can be happy, you know, um, even though my horrible stuff might be happening out otherwise, I, I guess I don't like that as well. Um, but I do think there's a lot of, you know, in philosophy and other traditions too, that kind of argue or, you know, kind of have a practice for having a quiet core with in oneself, like a, a quiet core. And to say that like, this doesn't mean we're robots. We don't feel about when things happen to ourselves or others. Cause sometimes like life really sucks. Sometimes things are really bad. And I think we have to really, you know, understand that. Um, but then to have, have a, a quiet core within ourselves to say like, all right, you know, things are not ideal or maybe far less than ideal. And then to say, well, what am I going to do? Like, can I make choices that are consistent with my values and my principles? Can I make choices about how to respond to this that are in keeping with my own integrity? Um, and I think that leads to, I mean, I don't know if it's happiness. I think I'd want to say contentedness, you know, to say like, all right, my core is, is stable. I'm all right. Things are bad, maybe. <laughs> But, um, but, you know, there's a sense of oneself that one can like ride through the storm, 
We can't control everything that happens to us. We can't control everything that's happening to our friends and, and our community members elsewhere. So I would say to the, to, to the question, maybe choosing to an extent, but um, I would want to say kind of a quietness or a because I read that your dissertation focused on the sense of responsibility yes. in a certain way. So how do you think the sense of responsibility might play into happiness? I mean, as far as as little as I know about your life, I know that things didn't come easy to you, <laughs> that uh, there was a line of... Uh, you know, responsible choices, uh, struggles, uh, decisions uh, uh, that uh, had to be made uh, at least uh, a sense of contentment. Do you think that uh, responsibility takes something away from uh, this choice we make uh, toward contentment and happiness? Uh, or, because when I talk about responsibility with my students, they say, oh my God, that's too heavy. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> likes to talk about responsibility. <laughs> uh, no, it doesn't seem so heavy to me. But yeah. it's, I'm asking you because you examined the concept, so I'm curious to see your point. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, you know, I think, you know, on the one hand, you know, going back to like integrity and, you know, one's core principles, I don't think I'd be happy if I felt I was being irresponsible. So that would, my happiness would go down the tank, you know, if I thought I was being irresponsible about something. But, but I think, you know, it was the idea of responsibility that led me to philosophy in the first place. And that I was living um, outside the United States. I was living in Nepal in a, in a very small village and we didn't have um, running water or electricity or money. <laughs> money and uh, and uh, like you know there's like nobody has money in their pockets you just grow you <laughs> yeah. grow you grow food and you eat it and then you grow it and then you eat it and you uh -huh. just kind of keep uh -huh. it so I lived I lived there and um I, I started thinking about uh, natural resource use actually I started thinking about how like the average middle class American you know can take 40 times the amount of resources as or more than 40 times the number of resources, amount of resources than someone that, a friend of mine in the, my village at the time. And I thought, wait, like, how is one responsible with regards to like the natural resources we consume and our impact on the earth? And then, and then even more so than on an individual level, what do we say that, what do we say to that about like a collective level? like looking at the natural resource use of the United States as opposed to like someplace like Nepal or Honduras or something like that. And I thought, um, and at the, this is before I studied philosophy, you know, formally, and I didn't know anybody asked these questions. I wanted to know like, how are we supposed to do this? What are we responsible for? I mean, do we say, like now we might say like, is the, is, is the industrialized countries, are industrialized countries responsible for global climate change? Right. People say, hmm, kind of seems like it. But then, like, how do we, how do we, you know, justify that and dig a little deeper, you know, and be careful about that? So that's what, like, got me into philosophy in the first place. And it was more environmental than anything else. And I came out of that situation. I wrote in my journal pages and pages and pages and pages and pages of stuff. I didn't know I was being a philosopher. And then... Uh, much later, I got to study philosopher, philosophy and I was like, oh, like I can ask these questions and other people do, too. And we can have a conversation about it. And I was I was I was elated. Where did you turn to to answer these questions? Which uh, well, you know, I, I was teaching community college math at the time because I have a background in math, too. Huh. And uh and I had, I, I could have a free course. So I took a free course in philosophy 101. Oh, wow. <laughs> and there's, you know, philosophers are talking about responsibility and, uh -huh. and those kinds of things. And again, like I'm a first generation college student. I didn't take philosophy as an undergrad. I, I didn't know what that was. Um, and then, and again, like I say, I was elated. So then I took um, night classes 
for about six years as I was, I was teaching college level math during the day and I was taking philosophy classes at night. Um, in search of people's on my responsibility <laughs> and other things about how to live a good yeah. life and what does it mean to have integrity and how do we do what's happiness. And so then for six years, I took night classes and then went to PhD school. I see. And was there a philosopher that spoke to you more than others uh, in these moments or it was uh, a connection of it that that mix of well there's two philosophers and they're really not very well known but um at the time about the time larry may was doing a lot on collective responsibility and peter french and i was a student of peter french he was a great mentor to me at arizona state university and and i didn't realize it but he and larry may kind of like sparred with each other at like the conferences they had different views but both of them um have been very influential. So how do we say that we have shared responsibility for something? And of course, like Pete Singer, I think has been influential on so many too. Uh, is there a, a pill or uh, a main concept uh, that uh, you got and treasured from them that you can share with us? You know, I, I think that one thing is that, um, so in my dissertation was on collective responsibility and that, that seemed to become a big topic right after World War II. Um, and, and all of the, you know, the philosophers in the English speaking world were saying like, you know, oh my gosh, is Germany responsible for the Holocaust? Say like, well, that's kind of a complicated question. Do you mean every single German? Yeah. <laughs> do you, do you yeah. mean only particular? And does it come in degrees or does, like, oh, I'm thinking of Carl Jaspers too, like, or does responsibility reside on the collective level? Does it distribute to individuals like a negative sign outside of parentheses? Um, And I guess, you know, of Annette Baer too, like of all the different philosophers I read at that time, Larry May, including and Peter Francis to say that, um, you know, at that time, there's people in philosophy who would say like collective responsibility. The idea that a collective is responsible is just nonsense. That makes no sense. Only individuals are responsible, collectives are not. And, um, and I was glad to find out that there were good people like May and French and Bear and Jaspers and so many others who said like, no, we can, we can have an understanding of responsibility of a collective. And maybe we have to. Um, you know, because we are so much influenced by the collectives that we reside within. Which beautifully connects with what you were saying at the beginning. I mean, uh, I might be happy in choosing uh, to be consistent with my core values, uh, with what is important in my life. But of course, if the world is going through craziness, can I feel happy? Well, there's a part of shared responsibility I have to look at. Yeah. Right now, shared responsibility for global climate change, shared responsibility for our collective uh, political climate. You know, like if, if we can kind of nurture a quiet core, that's not impervious to what's going on in the world. Um, and I, I, don't think, I don't think it can be, and I don't think it should be. You know, but it's to say that, you know, we have a sense of, of strength and resolve and maybe consistency too, you know, to um, rely on. But that doesn't mean we're going to close our identity off oh. from others and then just have this little like project to make myself happy and, you know, who yeah. knows what's happening elsewhere. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, can I ask you what pushed you to go that far in Nepal? I mean, I suppose that you are in the U.S. now, or you were yeah. in the U.S. Yeah, I'm up here in Humboldt County now, yeah. Uh, why Nepal? Well, it was, um, it was a strange thing. So this was, so I graduated in uh, high school in 82. And, so I, and then I graduated college in 86, um, studying math, secondary education, and a Spanish minor. And huh? I had 
this, my first job was teaching math and Spanish at a, at a high school. Wow. Um, and I had this very strong sense that um, there was a whole world out there that I didn't know about. Mm -hmm. Right. And that that we can so easily this is this is before the echo chambers of the Internet. Right. But we can so (laughs) easily like get in maybe a little echo chamber or like a a very small society. And a lot of people have our same values and cultures and language. Um, And and I I felt like how how could I. Maybe this sounds stronger than I mean it to, but like. Like, I, th- I think one should put themselves in places to challenge that, you know, to challenge that. Like, wow, other people see things completely different than I do. And I have no idea what that looks like. No idea. And I think there's some things with regards to culture and language that you really only understand if you're immersed in it. Um, so so I, um, I did I joined the Peace Corps. Um, so I was a Peace Corps volunteer and oh, wow. all they, they needed math teachers. And basically, basically the whole thing was like, well, that's weird. I'm a math teacher. <laughs> I yeah. can do that. I can go there, you know. Um, so I lived there for about three years. It was very difficult coming back to the U.S. in many ways. But, um, but I learned a lot. And I hope that um, the schools I taught at, they, I mean, they needed teachers. And again, I was like, well, I'm, I can do that. So I taught uh, algebra in, in Nepali language for about three years. So you spoke in language? Yeah. Oh, where, where did you learn? Did in you learn? Nepal, yeah. Oh, wow. In Nepal. And it was confusing, though, because I just got done te- teaching math in Spanish, and then I was teaching math in Nepali. <laughs> so I, I would get confused. As, and there's weird words that are the same in Nepali and are same oh. in Spanish. How could that be? I have no idea. But I would get confused sometimes. But my students were patient and I got better as time went. So. Wow. But fortunately, math remained the same. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Look, and was that an experience in which you had to question everything about yourself? Or did you have uh, other experiences that were even stronger than that one? Yeah. And you find that you have to start yeah. from scratch. Yeah. Well, maybe, I mean, like, you know, related to having some sort of like quiet center. I mean, I, I think I, it would be, I think it'd be terrifying to question everything about oneself all at once. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. Like one could question like pieces, you know, pieces of oneself. Um, yeah. You know, I'm, and, and I did, you know, I, I did seeing the United States, particular consumerism and, you know, um, and our relationship to the environment from someplace else is, there's a lot of questioning, um, you know, and being immersed in a culture that wasn't my own and no one to speak English with, right, that, you know, that is like, well, like, what are, you know, what are you, Laura? And I was a collegiate swimmer, and that was a huge part of my life in college huge you know like three four or five hours of practice a day like swimming and then i went to the my where i lived in nepal i told them i swam and they only knew like this little creek at the end of the bottom of the hill <laughs> you did what <laughs> so then i said well what I, what am i if i'm not a swimmer anymore uh, uh-huh. what am i if i'm not speaking english anymore? you know um you know how does that work? And so that, that was certainly things to um, think about. Mm-hmm. Um, also, you know, related, related to my book, The Politicization of Trans Identity. I yeah. do apologize. It's a very long title. <laughs> it's, a it's a very title. It's a very long title. It's, it's I, a I, title. I, the title is, <laughs> the subtitle is trickier. <laughs> well, it's just, it's just indicative of indecision, I'm afraid. But um but um, you know, I, I'm a I'm a trans person, and, and so at that time when I was living in Nepal, um, I was before transition. So um, the my students had never seen a woman teacher um, okay. before, and it was interesting because they called me sir, but they called me sir because they didn't think the word sir was gendered. They thought sir just meant teacher. <laughs> <laughs> but then it's weird. 
it's weird because it's like there was reasons that Sir kind of felt comfortable. Um, but I know, isn't that funny? Life is so funny. Oh, negative. Oh, God. Yeah. I know. It's so fair. But I remember, you know, thinking, um, you know, I, I, I started thinking about my own gender identity later in life, right? After studying philosophy and, and okay. giving a moment to think, like having time and space to think and not being like closed up, scared mm. of what opening one's mind might bring. Um, but mm -hmm. I, did, I did decide to transition. So I was assigned female at birth and went through life um, uh, as a girl, woman, person. Um, till I was 40. Um, oh, well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I like to say I gave it a real try there. It's not like... It... <laughs> because uh, now you cannot see him, but uh, you look 40 now. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> I wish I, wish I was. Just went. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I was. I wish I was. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm 58. I'm, I'm 58 now. But, um, but that involved a lot of questioning. You know, that involved a lot of questioning in terms of how do I understand myself? How do I understand myself in context? What choices can I make to, um, you know, have a future that I can imagine? You know, mm -hmm. and I think for me, you know, and trans stories are all different and, you know, and there's no, no one way, of course. But for me, like, I could not see a future. I could see no future without transition. Um, and, and it was at a point that um, I could finally think about making that kind of decision. Um, and so it was uh, difficult. <laughs> so basically you found yourself uh, in Nepal, <laughs> teaching mathematics uh, in Nepalese, uh not being i mean being an american but in a foreign land uh so being a swimmer but certainly not being able to swim being being called sir <laughs> while <laughs> being a woman and yet already started thinking about transitioning and what uh, what struck me is that before uh, you spoke about uh, this quiet place uh, is uh, a strong core uh, that uh, you keep calm and allows you to question one thing at a time. Because, I mean, uh, <laughs> right? <laughs> In that moment, you had plenty of things uh, on the plate uh, that uh, might have made you feel, uh, you know, lonely, lost, uh, uh, disorganized at least I, I don't know I mean uh, it's a, quite a change of setting do you um, want to share with us about this quiet place maybe you know yeah. some of us struggles to get there and it could yeah. be yeah I certainly I can't I can't claim that that I have mastered anything like that I think it's more of a goal um, but you're right I mean when I was you know away from everything I understood um, you know, a lot of things get stripped away. And it, and it was after that, you know, when I came home from, from being gone, um, that's, I came out as a lesbian then. I couldn't come out, I couldn't come out as a lesbian earlier because I, I you know, I thought that I was going to go to hell and that Oh. I was a horrible person, and uh, so I so so in that like time of long, such lo lots of loneliness, but loneliness and reading books, you know, I I came to the the idea to say like you know what it's it's okay to be attracted to women. That's that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that, and you can tell people that. And so that took a long time. I was raised in a pretty traditional Irish Catholic um, family. And then, so I came out as a lesbian. I thought that was, I thought that was the last time I'd have to come out. <laughs> <laughs> but it, but it, but it wasn't because as time went on, um, you know, and I had women partners and, you know, girlfriends or whatever. And uh, I realized that 
um, there was something else, you know, that um, really needed to be thought about and attended to. And, and we mentioned you, you, were, you were charitable a moment ago saying, I look younger than my age. Well, I always have. Um, uh-huh. So when I, li- when I lived, you know, when I lived or received, I looked about 12. All the people, <laughs> they, all the people would ask me in my village, they'd say, Did, does your mother know you're here? <laughs> it's all good. It's like, I'm a grown up. But, um, but yeah. because I've always looked so young, I basically looked like a prepubescent boy my whole life. Um, I always looked very gender um, uh, uh, non-conforming. Uh-huh. So I always look like, and I'm a very small, per- I'm a very small statured person. I'm a very tiny person. Uh-huh. So um, I looked like a boy my whole life. And, um, and, and it was part of that, which made me realize like, like how do I, you know, make congruent how I see, how the world sees me and how I see myself and how to continue on in my life. Um, and so, you know, by age 40, um, I realized like, all right, this is something I have to attend to and think about. And then what? Did philosophy help? Did friends help? Uh... Well, you know what? You know how philosophy helped is just to have time to think, mm-hmm. you know? just to have time to think. And a lot of people, you know, are online and stuff like that. And this was, you know, kind of before that. Um, I mean, there was the internet then, but I, I didn't do much with it. But, you know, I, I read a lot. And, um, and one thing, you know, that I think there's a comfort in what philosophy teaches, I find a comfort in this, you know, for my personal life is that, you know, let's say there's a big question. And philosophers, we we ask like the biggest questions ever, right? You know, like most important questions ever to humankind. Go ahead, like, you know, give it to us. Um, But whatever the big questions there are, there's there's a comfort to me. I'm saying like, like, okay, I can, maybe I won't get to the right, right answer, but like, we know how to do this. Okay, let's, Quiet, let's read some things. Let's think about some things. Let's talk to some folks. Let's think about it, right? And then to have and make space for that, um, that to me is comforting. You know, that there aren't questions um, that are impossible to even come to any kind of, you know, um, even preliminary answer. I'll give I'll give a story when I was teaching math. It was whole, it was just horrible. I was uh, a bunch of our students had to take a makeup test in college algebra because they had all done so bad. So I was it was on a Saturday morning, horrible. So I was proctoring it for me and all my colleagues. A bunch of students taking college algebra course, and they kept coming up to me and saying, "You know, Lauren, um, this isn't working out." You know, I was like, "You don't give hints." So I said, "Well, you know, keep working on it. It'll." It'll be okay, you know. Kept telling him this. Well, it turned out there was a typo in the problem, <laughs> and it was it was literally impossible. It was literally impossible to get the answer. So I realized that I felt horrible. I felt horrible, like all of the strife and stress and like consternation my students had gone through because it was a literally impossible problem. There was there was a plus somewhere where there was supposed to be a minus. So. And going back to philosophy, I'm comforted because there's there's these questions are really hard. What to do, how to make choices, how to go forward in your life. They're really hard, but they're not impossible, like that type of exactly. It's you like know? the process of asking yourself questions uh, that it's already soothing because uh, it breaches uh, a dialogue with yourself. Yeah. Because yeah. you are not ignoring yourself, but you're talking uh, to it, which is already important. Right. Okay. Remember any of the readings that you made during that time that can be helpful for those. Oh, but, but I went on a on a tour of trans autobiographies. There's there's oh, kind of a, an interesting tradition um, for trans folks to make the right autobiographies. Um, so Jameson Green's autobiography. Um, Jenny Finney Boylan's autobiographies, Max Valerio's autobiography, uh-huh. um, and and I'm so I'm so fortunate. A lot of these people I know, I kind of know, or at least a little bit. Or 
make sense. Um, so, um, so it was a it was a tour of autobiographies more than anything else. That's great. That's a great. That, that Can we say that uh, the quiet place uh, uh, consists exactly in this um, serenity you have uh, that you are there for yourself? That you know, no matter how uh, crazy things are around, uh, you'll make space to create a dialogue with yourself after all. Uh -huh. I, think, I think so. I would, to make space for a dialogue with myself, I think sometimes it's harder now because there's so many more distractions now with the bing, 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 and you got to miss somebody yeah. looking on Facebook, like whatever, you know, but... But I think it's it's the dialogue with oneself, and then also to know that none of us are alone. Exactly. None of us are alone. And when I think about like what does it mean to go to college or read a book, is that you know for me it's like finding a friend. You know when I read when I read Bell Hooks the first time when she was thinking about when she wrote about the importance of theory, I thought, oh gosh, I have like a lifelong friend now. And, <laughs> That's and whenever I want to talk to her again about this, I get this essay and I get to read it. And then it's all right here with me again. You know? um, yeah, she gets me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, she's yeah, just yeah. so right. Just some, some thinkers are just, just like, right. You're just right. So I, <laughs> there's nothing to say about it. And so, um, so I, think, I think it's like having time to have dialogue with oneself and knowing that there's this whole bunch of folks that are not only pulling from oneself in a kind of hopefully productive introspection, but are also teachers and friends. Um, that, that makes it not a lonely exercise, I think. Yeah. And, you know, as you were describing, uh, we have in life uh, moments uh, in which we feel this call for congruency. Yeah. Uh, and, I mean, it... It might happen if you feel the need for a transition, but sometimes it's just a spiritual growth or finding the job. And uh, yeah, you need friends. Yes, <laughs> yeah. You need uh, this dialogue to be there. You need uh, to look for uh, someone uh, maybe who got this thought, this idea and, uh, and uh, can get it closer to you. Mm -hmm. I think I think so many of us are philosophers, you know, I think everybody is a philosopher in a way. And I grew up thinking like I'm, I was the only one who thought these about these weird things <laughs> like nobody else is thinking about this, Lauren, like you're just being weird. And then when I realized again, I was like, you know, my late 30s when I went to PhD school um, that like, oh, I'm not the only one thinking about this weird stuff. And some of these people have said some things that are really pretty fascinating. Um, yeah, that, that was always. And what's, uh, what's your research focusing on? What have been the main hindrances uh, to your research so far? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, I guess I'll say two things. One, one, one is maybe a silly answer. I mean, one is deciding what to think about. There's so many things right now to think about. Yes. Um, I mean, just in terms of like social and political philosophy or ethics or environmental ethics. Um, philosophy of law. Yeah. I mean, there's so much, you know, so I think that, that that's, a, that's a personal problem <laughs> to figure <laughs> out, you know, what to think about or what to, what to really delve into in a, in a more formal way. Um, but I mean, to be honest, um, it's, it's also I've been a, a lecturer for 16, 17 years uh, at my university. And and it's very difficult having a five class load and do any research at all. Basically, I know, <laughs> you know, and and uh, and that's um, that's that's a hindrance. And so then, you know, uh -huh. one has to figure out, um, yes, is this a hobby? Mm -hmm. is philosophy no like it's it's more than a hobby um but there are are limits to just what one can do in a day 
yeah. um, and you know the the book that was just published and other things they're on controversial topics i've already gotten hate mail about it basically okay. and it's difficult to engage in some of these topics without um the kind of support that comes with a permanent job so i've i've had a temporary job for all these years and and i think i think and i know a lot of people don't think a lot about the two-tiered system or even know it exists but i, I think it um i think it's unjust and i don't think it works well for our students or for our faculty members so that's a hindrance i agree and there's such a disparity between uh, how certain jobs are paid uh yeah it drives me crazy Mm-hmm. I'd be I'd be happy with a permanent job and um, that security. If I have a living wage, I'm glad, I'm happy, you know. But but it's it's difficult not knowing from year to year. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, in San Francisco, there was the crisis of uh, teachers sleeping in a tent. But not only in San Francisco, in Europe too, London, England especially. Oh, I saw that. Um, yeah, they couldn't afford uh, a room, not even a room. Uh-huh. <laughs> they would go teaching, uh, trying to convey values uh, to their students. So this is uh, absolutely. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I'm I'm fortunate in that I have a I'm a temporary employee, but I've been here a while, so obviously it doesn't seem very temporary. But um, but it's a it's a hindrance both like psychologically for me. Of course. Um, because I was grew up and, and had financial challenges when I grew up. And so security is really, really important. Um, but um, I, I try to work with it. Are you thinking to tackle that uh, with your research? Or, uh, uh, or is it something that remains part of your life and not part of your studying? That goes back to the first problem of, my, of, of uh, deciding what to... <laughs> What to engage in? That goes back to problem number one. Um, but I do, you know, I do think a lot about it, you know, and I'm really active in our in the faculty union. And uh, yeah, I do. I yeah. I but but recently, like partly, I wrote my book because um, the amount of anti-trans backlash, particularly with regards to legislative proposals, it was just immense. It was just. I just felt like it needed to be, there needs to be a response. There needs to be some sort of response to what's happening here. Um, And so I felt like that choice was kind of made for me, you know? Um, You know, maybe this is back to responsibility in in a way, but I felt like, well, as a, you know, as a trans academician who is at least paying some attention to this and thinking about this, Maybe I have a responsibility to maybe not have the last word, but contribute to the conversation. Mm-hmm. What was the event that brought you to say, okay, I have to write something, I have to do something? Was there one event or something that struck your attention the most? Well, it was, you know, in 2015 was the same, you know, the same sex ruling from the Supreme Court, you know, there was same sex marriage 2015. And, mm-hmm. and it was after, I guess that would be 2016 is when the very first uh, Trans Lives in Theory course was a, a fully funded three credit course at my university that I was developed oh. and taught. So before that, I had taught uh, a volunteer one credit course. So I just did one, one credit overload right and I did this um but it was the first time we had actually three credit courts like all right we are like legit you know <laughs> let's like bring it and uh and I started I started keeping track just like you know like on the on the course page I was keeping track of like current events you know and uh and that was when the North Carolina um uh, trans bathroom bill occurred Ah. And so that, you know, I posted that on my current event section. It's like, oh, weird. Look what's happening in North Carolina. Um, and that was a rule that would have me and others like me, like in terms of my assignment at birth, have to use the women's restroom. Um, it, that would not go well. 
<laughs> I would never go up. But anyway, so so that happened in North Carolina, and then there was like a whole bunch of states right after that had similar proposals, and then there was laws against adoption, then there was laws against changing a birth certificate, and recently there have been laws about changing your name, and then there's laws about um, all, I mean, all sorts of things related to, to mm-hmm. trans people flourishing in society, participating in society as equal members. And, and it was just like the, it was the quantity. I think it was the quantity, you know, there was this elation of the same sex ruling, the elation that my class was funded. Thank you for the, you know, proponents at my university. And then it was like, what is going on? Like looking at a national level. Um, and then I was, you know, a lot of academicians are a little obsessive. Then I just kept keeping track of like the amount of legislation. And I, I felt like, what's happening? Gotta, gotta make sense of this or at least try. Um, so I think that was the, do you think that uh, your book uh, managed to challenge the status quo? Managed to? I do. I do because um, it's not it's not all right to demonize trans folks. Not really. Um, in order to like get a vote, I, I see see trans folks and and this this affects gender non nonconforming folks and gender non-binary folks, of course, as well. Um, you know, whether people identify as trans or not, that, that like, that we're being used as a kind of a pawn in a political game, you know, to instill fear in people in order to get the vote out, to get a certain kind of vote out, to get a certain person into, into office. Um, and, and I think that there, there is a, at least one aspect of, of kind of trying to tie into the concern that people had that were disappointed by the Obergefell, the same-sex ruling, um, you know, that said that same-sex marriage was was lawful, that there were people who were upset about that. And then, so then kind of redirect that energy, you know, take all those email lists and just slightly change them to something related. Um, You know, that now we have like five, 600 proposed legislation against trans folks since that time. And not all of it is passed. I mean, that I think is important to recognize, but what it's, what it's doing, it's making a social and political climate, which makes it very hard to flourish. Um, and our students know, I mean, adult trans and gender non-binary people know this and our students know this too. Um, you know, that, that what does it mean to like live in a country where you know, the majority of states have at least some anti-trans legislation um, attempting to curtail one's social participation. So it is, I mean, certainly, I think, you know, I'm not sure, I think the status quo, you know, would be like, oh, this is a, you know, all the stereotypes about trans folks. And, um, you know, to be a proponent of those and to say like, this isn't a big deal. no, this is like really a big deal and it's wrong. And, and I think that needs to be stated unequivocally and to recognize um, who's being used and, and the harm that it's, that it's causing to, to our to individuals and also in our community. What's the advice you would give to younger generations? Uh, are uh, in the same position who are, uh, you know, trying to become themselves and uh, have troubles flourishing. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I mean, related to kind of what we were saying before, I mean, you know, you know, take time to listen to yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's so you- much chatter and so much distraction. Yeah, exactly. Because uh, I have some students uh, who say, but doesn't say anything. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I stay there and uh, either it says too many things uh, that are opposite to each other and it becomes uh, a kind of a background noise uh, that disorient me or it stays there and doesn't say anything. What? What advice can we give them? I know. I mean, in, in that sense, I think then it's like, like um, not everybody likes to 
particularly folks who like background, like people like background noise. I don't like background noise. I like silence. But like, like instead, it's like with that. So I'm a very um, active person, you know. So then I say like instead of like right. sitting in the room and thinking, um, yeah, <laughs> go for a, go for a walk and and look at the beautiful colors. There are. I am totally. I'm I'm totally taken aback by the colors of our world, right? Go outside, look at pretty colors. Uh-huh. And then in the back of your mind, think about some of these other issues. And yeah. and then they come together. Sometimes, oh, sometimes people say this is a great essay on happiness. And I've been look, I've been trying to find it for years because I lost it, but it says that you can't direct, you can't shoot for happiness directly. You have to kind of sneak up on it and go around <laughs> it. Like, I want to be happy. So do X. Well, I don't like to do X. Find what you like to do. And then that happiness is a consequence. And so like, you know, see the beauty in the world. And I think that allows one to maybe listen to oneself and then know that there's a lot of friends out there. Some of them are on the internet. Some of them have written books. Um, but don't be afraid to ask those questions because and also there's time in life. I mean, if, if decisions, I'm a horrible decision. I'm terribly indecisive because uh, I want the right answer. And a friend told me once, said like, Lauren, if you, if you can't figure out the right answer, maybe you just don't have enough information. That's a great advice to give. That's right? so true. Mm-hmm. Instead of saying, no, I have to do this. Well, maybe, maybe the answer is to like live with oneself for six months, a year, or for me, 40. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, and maybe, you know, the answers will come to the top. You know, they'll come to the top. But if it's forcing, 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 maybe, maybe it needs more time, more information, and that's all right. Yeah, that's a good point. And so, I mean, time flew by, speaking of which. It did. Uh, it's incredible. Already one hour passed. But uh, uh, I'd like to ask you this uh, final question that I ask all my guests, which is, uh, what do you think uh, is the meaning of life? And uh, if happiness has anything to do with that, uh, or uh, as you were saying, is one of the consequences uh-huh. while you enjoy doing what uh, you like doing? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, ending on a on an easy question, I see. <laughs> I know it's always like that. <laughs> the best uh, for the last. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you know, um, you know, the uh, uh, the meaning of life is to is to find and recognize meaning. I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I just think it's every, it's just everywhere. I mean, those. You know, and I know folks can get angsty and what, you know, whatever, like, oh, life has no meaning, you know. Uh-huh. Like, you know, I, I see meaning everywhere I look. Everywhere I look, you know, if I want to take a walk, I, I take my dogs for a walk in the morning. Like, I walk my dogs and I see beautiful colors of, of vegetation. I see other animals. I see people living their lives mm-hmm. and in community with their friends and their family. Yeah. And and the love and affection that's there, that is so meaningful to me. And I think there's so much beauty. And I think that, you know, to to find a way to recognize, and I say recognize in the sense of I may be not making meaning all by myself. It's mm-hmm. in concert with recognizing the meaning that's there, which which I really kind of think is everywhere. And I think that that brings you know, what, what I would call happiness or happiness for me. I mean, I know sometimes philosophers, when we talk, when we said about like having time to think for oneself, um, there is, you know, some navel gazers, they say like navel gazers, you know, gazing at my navel. I, I, I sometimes am happiest when I look out, you know, mm-hmm. and I look out at all the meaning that's everywhere. And then, and then I, I feel so fortunate that I get to participate in that meaning, you know, whether it's teaching my students, having conversations with my students or having a conversation with a neighbor or going on a backpacking trip, you know, to say like, wow, there's like this 
interconnected web of meaning and I get to play a little part in that. And I, that makes me very happy. That, that to me, it kind of goes from morality and meaning to aesthetics that I just find it yeah, yeah. just beautiful to me. Yeah. Did it ever happen to you that uh, you, I don't know, in any point in your life uh, you felt so sorry for yourself uh, and meanings disappeared? Uh, and the more you felt sorry, the more meaning disappeared <laughs> and you got into this vicious cycle. Yeah. And then by luck uh, or uh, help for, from somebody else, uh, you looked around, uh, you looked somewhere else. Uh, uh-huh. And uh, ah, the meaning came back, uh, yeah. or helping someone else, or yeah, just uh, enjoying the beauty of uh, yeah. outside. Yeah, I think I think beauty is the gateway. When I recognize beauty in all its forms, which are like you know infinite uh-huh. almost, beauty is the gateway to meaning. You know, and then and. And, and then, and then like that kind of spiraling down, you know, where there's no meaning or, you know, I'm in a, in a vacuous void of nastiness. That starts to go away because like, wow, I saw something really beautiful and where's something else? And then, and then the meaning kind of, for me, kind of flows yeah. after that. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, Dostoevsky was right after all. Yes. <laughs> You'll save the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's. Uh, that, thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much for this beautiful interview, Lauren. It's. Uh, oh, it's been so much fun. <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, it was very generous. Uh, that's what I think uh, with uh, personal uh, uh, insights and uh, philosophical uh, uh, reflections about uh, about your life. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I tried to make connections. And I think those connections are pretty easy to make most times. Thank you for being my guest today. Well, thank you for visiting with me. This has been great. If uh, if you didn't have COVID, I uh, say, well, let's go get a... a... Yes. Oh, God, COVID. Get, get the booster, get vaccinated. It's horrible. <laughs> yeah, well, well the best, best wishes for a very quick recovery Thank and you can be done with this and then you